You guys can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So let me ask you, where do you find happiness? What do you do to try to make yourself content in life? Now, if you look at advertisements, open a magazine, watch a commercial, they'll give you lots of answers for where you go to find happiness in life. You've got to open a Coca-Cola. Or if that particular beverage is not strong enough for you, open up a Heineken. Maybe that will do it. Or maybe it's not something you need to drink. Maybe it's something you need to buy, buy a BMW motorcycle that'll make you happy or take a vacation to Fiji. Maybe that'll do it. Or if none of those things do it, buy a house. Because in real estate ads, they're always really happy. Maybe that will do it. But maybe it's not something you buy. Maybe it's a change of relational status. Maybe you need to get engaged or married. Every jewelry advertisement has smiling, happy people on it. Or actually, if you check your Facebook feed, what you'll see is what you need to be happy is a baby because parents of new babies are always smiling and happy on Facebook. Or maybe you need to be like this couple and get a baby and a new house at the same time and you get (laughs) double happiness. We live in a world that assumes that happiness and contentment are found in the circumstances of life. All of these things, your possessions, your relational status, all those kind of things. That's where contentment is found. And so if you are not content in life, what you need to do is change your circumstances. Get a new job or a bigger house or a new boyfriend or girlfriend, have a child, whatever it is. You need to change your circumstances because they assume that contentment is found in circumstances. That's what our world assumes, and actually it's what most of us assume as well. Even if we will not admit it to ourselves, most of us live as if our contentment and joy and and happiness in life is found in our circumstances. And in the church, that is particularly true for the circumstance of marriage. That's what we really tend to tie contentment to. Here's some statistics for you. According to the Bureau of Labor here in the United States, they have been tracking marital status in the United States for years. And so back in 1976, they surveyed America and found that 37.4% of Americans, 16 and over, which they're calling adults, were single back in, in 76. That percentage has increased steadily every single year since that survey was taken until this year, August 2014, 125 million Americans are single. That is, for the first time, over half. 50.2% of America is not married, is single. What that means is that here in America, single is the new normal. That's the average American, a single person. But you would not know that coming to church. You come into church and what you find is that most churches unintentionally communicate that, that the ideal Christian life is to go to college, get a job, start your career, get married, buy a house, and have kids. That's what you tend to hear in church. Most churches work with this assumption that the ideal Christian life includes marriage. And so if you're not married yet, keep trying, keep hoping, keep praying, because maybe you'll get there one day. Now, some churches really do believe that, that the ideal Christian life must include marriage. I have a friend who's single and in his 30s, and he volunteered at this church. He led at a really high level. It's what we would call a deacon was, was his level of service there. And he was in a meeting one day with the head pastor, a number of other people, and the, this pastor did not know that this guy was single. And they were talking about how to engage people in service in the church, and the conversation came up about how to engage singles. And the pastor said, well, I trust single guys about as far as I can throw them. Seriously? 
Did you know Paul's single? Did you know Jesus was single? So you trust him as far as you can throw him. Really? So you're going to throw all single men under a bus because a 30-year-old single man does not fit your paradigm of the ideal Christian life. That's incredibly wrong. So let's be really clear. Here at Grace Bible Church, we do not believe that there's anything wrong with living as a single person your entire life. We do not believe that marriage is better than singleness. But we're not always great at communicating that truth. I've been spending time this last week corresponding with singles here at Grace Bible Church, different ages, both men and women, trying to understand how how do they see Grace Bible Church and how do they think that we see them? And what I heard consistently from all these singles here at our church is that they love Grace Bible Church. They love being here, but many of them from time to time feel somewhat unwelcome here. They feel second class here. They don't feel like they fit in. They feel like Grace Bible Church and all churches are trying to squeeze everyone into this one mold that includes marriage and kids as if that's the ideal Christian life. And if you don't fit it, then you don't fit in. I talked to them about, about what makes them feel hurt when they, when they come to a church. And, and they said a number of things. It, it hurts them when we treat them with sympathy or pity. As if there's something pitiable about living a single life. As if there's something wrong with them or broken in them. That that hurts them. They said that it hurts when we assume that they're lonely. Well, some are, but many aren't. They have great friends. They have great relationships. And besides, there's a ton of married lonely people in America. It hurts them when we assume that they will come move our furniture for us. Because we do. We married people. We assume that if we need some furniture moved, well, hey, just call up your single friends because they got loads of free time. Well, no, they don't. They're incredibly busy doing great things. They're busy at work. They're busy in the community and in ministries and professional organizations, learning new things, doing incredible things. They don't just have all this free time to serve married people. Now, they love to serve, but we shouldn't assume that they're available on any night of the week we want. It hurts single women when we say that, well, Jesus just wants you to date him for a while. No, he doesn't. (laughs) That is wrong on so many levels. Jesus is no one's significant other. He is creator and king. We need to keep that straight. It hurts singles when we say, well, God will provide. Just you wait and see. So you're saying God's not providing now. In my life as a single, God's not here yet. And and my life is really just about waiting until God brings me something better. What that sounds like is that we think marriage is better. That marriage is the ideal path for all Christians. Our church, like almost all churches, is guilty from time to time of unintentionally marginalizing adults who are single because we live with this unchallenged assumption that the ideal Christian life includes marriage and kids. But that's not true. That is not true. The ideal Christian life, the the life of contentment and joy and service to the Lord does not include any particular circumstances. And marriage and parenting, that's just a circumstance. God wants you to understand that the ideal Christian life, the life of contentment and happiness and joy deep in your soul, it's not based on any circumstance in life. Not your job status, not your wealth, not your relational status. None of that matters. So it doesn't matter whether you're married or single, the ideal Christian life is available to you because it's not about circumstances. Contentment and lasting joy in your life is absolutely independent of any circumstance. You can have contentment at any stage of life in any circumstance of life. 
But that leads to the question that we want to talk about this morning. How do you find contentment in life? It's not based on circumstances, so where do you get it? Where do you find true, lasting happiness and joy deep in your soul? What do you need to do to find that contentment? Well, the Bible tells us that 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 kind of contentment, that kind of deep joy in our soul, it doesn't come easy to us as human beings. Contentment doesn't come naturally to us as a species. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, it's something you've got to learn. Contentment is something you've got to work at and strive for. It's something you have to cultivate in your heart. Contentment is something you must teach yourself. And so here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is going to show us how we teach ourselves to be content in any circumstance, in any stage of life. He's going to walk us through four truths that will foster contentment in our lives, irrespective of circumstance. Four truths that that you need to know, and you need to believe, and you need to own, and you need to meditate on these truths. You need to remember them. You need to refresh your mind with these four truths, day in and day out. When you feel tempted towards discontentment, when you feel tempted towards envy or jealousy of other people in a different stage of life, you need to meditate on these four truths. They can make you content in any circumstance. Four truths that Paul wants us to understand about contentment. First truth, if you want to be content, that you've got to know, is that contentment begins with the gospel. Now, this truth is actually not explicit here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's assumed. You see, the entire book of 1 Corinthians was written to believers, to men and women who have already trusted in Jesus as their Savior. That's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's speaking about the audience of this book, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, that is, you believed, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. At some point in the past, probably some years before writing this book, Paul visited Corinth and preached the gospel to them, the good news. That Jesus, God's son, died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead so they could have eternal life as a free gift. And they received that as true. They believed it. And so everything you find in 1 Corinthians assumes that you're already a believer. It only works for you if you've already trusted in Jesus. So all that Paul will say about contentment in chapter 7, it only applies to believers. You see, you, you cannot find true happiness, true contentment without the gospel. Because it's the gospel that that answers your biggest needs in life. It's the gospel that brings you forgiveness and peace and hope in the future. And without that security and hope in your life, contentment will just be, it will slip through your fingers. You'll never have it for long. Contentment begins with the gospel. So let me just be really practical. If you want to have contentment in life, If you want to have joy and peace and happiness deep in your soul, you must first believe the gospel. You got to choose to believe that God's love and forgiveness isn't something you work for. It's not something you have to earn. It's not something you have to desperately hope maybe he'll give you when you die. It's a free gift that you just receive. You receive it by believing that Jesus, his son, died for your sins to cleanse you so that you could be forgiven and you could have eternal life and become a child of God now and forever. It's a free gift. You just receive it. The moment that you believe that, contentment becomes possible for you because now you know that God loves you and that God has forgiven you and that God will save you. And that's the foundation, that that foundation of security and hope. That's what contentment is built on. Now, now, once you have believed the gospel, 
once you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, contentment in life becomes possible for you, but it doesn't become easy. The moment you trusted in Jesus, God didn't reach down and flip the happy switch in your life. If you've been a believer for a while, you know that. Life is still hard, still painful, lots of suffering. It's not easy to be content in life, even as a believer. It's possible now for us as believers, but it's not easy. We've got to work at it. We've got to cultivate that sense of contentment in our lives by meditating on these truths that that Paul wants to lay out for us. So the first truth that he has for us is that contentment begins with the gospel. Now the second truth, and this one is explicitly in our passage, the second truth that leads to contentment is that your circumstance has advantages. Your circumstance, your stage of life has advantages. Look with me at chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Paul says, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul was single. We don't know, was he married in the past and and his wife died or maybe she left him when he converted to Christianity or was he never married to begin with? We don't know. We know that at this stage in life, he is single and he thinks that he has a gift in his life that's related to that singleness. And that always leads people to ask about verse seven. What is this gift of singleness? What, what is that? I had a friend who wasn't married till later in his life. He always used to say that this is the gift that no one wants. Well, That's actually not true. No, Paul did want this gift. Paul was glad to have this gift of singleness, but what is it? Well, it's not a spiritual gift per se in the traditional sense because it doesn't appear in any of the lists anywhere else in Scripture that that list out spiritual gifts. And it's not just a physical thing like a lower than average sex drive. It, It appears to be, the best we can figure out, is that this gift of singleness is a supernaturally strong focus on the mission that God has given you in life that makes all other earthly attachments like marriage pale by comparison. You see, Paul was so passionate about this mission that God had given him to plant churches throughout the Gentile world that every other distraction in life, like marriage, like parenting, it just faded into the background because he was so focused on this mission. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul wasn't attracted to women. It doesn't mean that Paul wasn't lonely at times. What it means is that this mission was so compelling in his life that everything else fell by the wayside. So how do you know if you have the gift of singleness? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us a test to determine whether you have this gift. I do think that if you really want to be married and you really want to have sex, then probably you don't have it, at least not yet. So That's what Paul wants us to understand about this gift, but this gift isn't really the interesting part of this passage. What's interesting is verse 8, where Paul tells us that it is better to be single than to be married. Now, if you can't control your sex drive, get married, but if you can, it's better to remain single. Why does Paul say that? Why is it better for a Christian to stay single than to get married? Well, Paul unpacks that. He answers that starting in verse 32. Look at me, verse 32. Why is singleness better? Paul says, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. 
This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, Paul is not saying that singleness is always better than marriage. What he is doing is speaking to a culture that assumed that everyone should get married. In the ancient world, that, that was the assumption, especially for a Jew like Paul. If you were a 30-year-old Jew and were not married, everyone assumed there was something wrong with you because no one does that. That's not good. But Paul says, no, actually it is good to remain single because there is this huge advantage to the single life. Right there at the end of the passage, you can give the Lord undivided, undistracted devotion. That's the advantage of the single life. You, you have uh, the ability to give God your full and complete attention and devotion. Now, if you're married, you've seen that reality. When I was a single man, I could have great quiet times with the Lord. They could last as long as I wanted. I could spend deep time with him. I could spend time in his word and in prayer and in worship. Now I'm married and I have twin five-year-olds in the house. And so I have not had an undistracted quiet time in more months than I can remember. It never fails. I'll be uh, in the room in my quiet time chair reading the Bible. I have this Bible in a year and and I read through each passage for each day. And every day, I, I get like two-thirds of the way through, and there's this moment, it's, it's building in me that I just need to confess my sins to the Lord, or I need to worship Him or praise Him. My emotions are stirring within me, and then into the room walks a naked child who needs help putting on their underwear. Every day. Every day. It doesn't matter. Always the same. And that reminds me of how much I miss That sweet time when I was single, I didn't have the joy of Julie and the kids, but I did have undivided, undistracted devotion with the Lord. And what that has taught me and what Paul wants us to understand about life is that every stage of life has advantages and disadvantages. Every stage of life has good things about it. No stage of life is better than any other stage. They all have advantages and disadvantages. Now, most people in this world are are, are just waiting for the next stage of life, assuming that that finally in that next stage of life, they will have contentment and joy and happiness. So so high schoolers, they just can't wait to get to college. Then I'll be happy. And and students in college, they can't wait to to graduate because then I'll be happy. And you graduate, can't wait to start your job. Then I'll be happy. You start your job, can't wait to get married. Then I'll be happy. Get married, can't wait to have kids. Then I'll be happy. Have kids, can't wait till they move out of the house. Then I'll be married. It's always the next stage of life where happiness will be found. You assume when I get to that next stage, I will finally be content. No, you will not. Because every stage of life has advantages and disadvantages. No stage of life is better than any other stage of life. Every stage of life is hard and then you die. That's life, (laughs) this side of heaven. We need to understand that the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence until you get to heaven. That's where the grass is green. Here on earth, it's just different grass on the other side of the fence. (laughs) With its own pains, its own pleasures, but it's still hard. And because of that reality, because the grass is never greener on the other side of the fence, what that means is that you must learn to see and celebrate the advantages of the stage of life you're in right now. If you can't find contentment in this stage of life, you will never find it. Because no stage of life is better than any other. You must learn to see and celebrate and give thanks 
for the advantages and blessings of this stage of life. Every stage of life has advantages. Learn to see them. Learn to celebrate. Learn to give thanks for the advantages of your circumstances. That's the second truth that we need to know and learn and and believe and meditate on. Third truth that Paul lays out for us that will drive contentment in our life is the reality that the end is near. Look with me starting in verse 25. Paul says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. It is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. But I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none and those who weep as though they did not weep and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice and those who buy as though they did not possess and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it for the form of this world is passing away. Paul saw a crisis coming. And what is that crisis that is imminent? It, it could be a famine that was going on in Corinth. We know historically at this time. But, but more likely what Paul is talking about is the end times, the return of Christ, the end of, of this world order. Paul wants us to understand that right now, since Jesus has already died and risen from the dead, you are living in the last days. You're living in eschatology right now. The whole biblical time period from the resurrection of the Messiah till his return is the end times. You're living in the end times. What that means is that Jesus could come back at any moment. There is no event that needs to happen in this world before Jesus comes for you. He could come at any moment before the end of the sermon. Before lunch today, he could be here. Jesus could come at any moment. And that reality that time is short, that he could come back at at any moment, it puts everything in, in perspective for us. It helps us to find contentment in any circumstance, that, that sense of urgency. It helps put our circumstances in perspective. And Paul lists a number of circumstances. So buying and selling, having money, having possessions don't really matter because they won't last. When Jesus comes back, it won't matter how much money you have. It won't matter how big your house is. And, and rejoicing in, in things that you, you enjoy and, and weeping over things that you suffer about, ultimately they won't last because rejoicing and weeping, that'll, that'll come to an end. And finally, marriage. Even marriage itself will come to an end. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. Until death do you part and then it's over. Marriage does not last past this life. It is a temporary thing. And that reality, it helps to foster contentment in any stage of life. Even if you're single, even if you're never married, you can be content. Why? Because you know one day we're all going to be chilling in the beauty and bliss of heaven and no one is going to care whether you were married or not. Because marriage will be a past life thing. Marriage, that that will be something we've forgotten about. It'll be eclipsed by what we're enjoying in heaven. It will be irrelevant. Marriage does not ultimately matter because it does not last into eternity. It is a temporary thing. Now, for some of you, that's making you really sad because you're engaged and you really thought this this marriage thing is so romantic, eternal bond between the two of you, and this makes you sad. Let me comfort you. When you are in heaven, you will not love your spouse less. 
You will actually love your spouse far more than you do today because you'll love with perfected, absolutely unconditional love, the love of God. But the deal is, is your love will not be bound to one person. You will love all your brothers and sisters in Christ with that infinite, perfect love. And so when I'm in heaven, I will not miss Julie. I will love Julie more than I do now with the same love with which I love all of you, the perfect, infinite, unconditional love of God. And in view of that perfect, incredible love that binds us all together, marriage will be just a shadow, just a shadow that we're all forgetting. And so ultimately, it does not matter whether you get married or not because one day you'll be with us in heaven and no one will care because we will be bound together by a love that transcends anything marriage could have ever offered. Ultimately, that's why Paul says the very odd thing that he does in verse 29 when he says, those who have wives should be as though they had none. He is not giving husbands permission to be jerks to our wives. We cannot neglect our wives. That's not what that's about. What Paul is saying is that in our marriage with husbands and wives, with our spouses, we need to have this mutual understanding that this marriage that unites us together that's wonderful will not last past this life. And so, Our marriage must always play second fiddle. Marriage has to play second fiddle to the one and only relationship that lasts for eternity, your relationship with God. That's what matters. That that relationship with Jesus, that relationship with Jesus Christ trumps every other relationship. In fact, it defines and gives meaning to all these temporary relationships. That's the only relationship that lasts into eternity, and so it is the infinite number one priority in your life. That's why Jesus said this very strange thing that trips us up in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He does not actually want you to hate your family. What he does want you to do, however is so prioritize your relationship with him that it trumps everything else in your life. He wants you to recognize that all these earthly relationships of marriage and parenting, brothers, they all will pass away. The one relationship that matters is your relationship with him. Your time in his word, your time building his kingdom, sharing his gospel, praying and worshiping him, that's what matters most because that's the only relationship that will last. So you can have contentment in any season of life because you know the end is near. It's coming soon. Your time is short. If Jesus delays, even if you live to be 106 years old, that is still an incredibly short amount of time compared to eternity. So what matters in life is your relationship with Jesus Christ, not whether you get married or not. Because one day we'll all be sitting in heaven and no one will care who was married and who was not. The end is near. That's the The third truth that Paul wants us to know and own and meditate on, fourth truth that will foster contentment in our lives. He wants us to understand that that what matters in life is obedient service to the Lord. Look with me starting in verse 17. He says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. 
Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. What Paul does is he picks up two more circumstances in life. So you had marriage, now you've got slavery and circumcision. All three of those, circumc- of those circumstances in the society of first century Corinth determined your value as a human being. Whether you were circumcised, whether you were a slave, that determined your identity and significance. So circumcision. The Jews demanded circumcision. So they, they expected, if you want to be holy, if you want to be spiritual, you've got to be circumcised. The Gentiles ridiculed circumcision. They thought it was shameful. And so depending on who you were trying to impress, whether a Jew or a Gentile, you might want to get circumcised or uncircumcised. Both were actually medically possible. I'm not going to explain it to you. Um, but people would seek those to try to improve their lot in life. Similar with slavery. Slavery was actually very common in Corinth. We look back at at historical records and it turns out that about a third of the population of Corinth were slaves. Another third were former slaves who had purchased their freedom. And the final third were freeborn, those born in freedom. So you had three groups of equal size but very different social standing. In Corinth, where you fell, which of those groups determined everything for you? That, That was your significance in life. Slaves had no significance. Freeborn had all the significance. And so Paul addresses this issue of slavery, and it's really clear that Paul does not like slavery. If you can get out of slavery, you should do that. Actually, we can show really clearly from 1 Corinthians and particularly the book of Philemon that Paul was very anti-slavery, and yet Paul was a realist, and he knew that in the Roman Empire, slavery wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. And so he was going to be ministering to churches that were full of slaves, and he needed to speak to those slaves and help them to understand that despite this slavery that they could not control in this life, ultimately, even if it's horrible, it is just a circumstance it's just a circumstance of life and so it does not determine your identity or your significance and you can still be content in life even as a slave that's the thing that Paul wants us to understand about slavery it's not determinative of their lives he does not like slavery but it doesn't have to crush you you can still have contentment and joy deep in your soul even as a slave what matters verse 19 is that you obey the commands of God even as a slave in the most horrible circumstances imaginable if you will devote your life to pleasing the Lord serving the Lord obeying the Lord you can have contentment even in those awful circumstances what matters if you want to be content in life is that you obey the Lord you pursue the Lord and so that's why Paul says that whatever circumstances you were in when God called you to salvation that's when he when he called you to believe in Jesus when you accepted the gospel whatever circumstances you were in whether married or single slave or free circumcised uncircumcised you are free Paul says to not change those circumstances he doesn't say you must not change them. That's a bit of a mistranslation in English. He's saying that you're, you're free to not change them. You don't have to change your circumstances in life to find significance and value from the Lord. He wants them to understand if, if you are a slave, you do not have to become free to be meaningful to God, to be significant in God's sight because slave versus free is meaningless to God. It doesn't keep you from being meaningful in his sight. And you don't have to change your circumstances in life to find joy and and happiness and contentment because that's irrespective of circumstances. 
You can have contentment even in awful circumstances if you will obey the Lord, if you will serve Him. Contentment, the secret to contentment is found in obedient service to God. If you will dedicate your life, devote your life to to serving God, to building His church, to expanding His kingdom, to sharing His gospel, you will find contentment and joy deep in your soul that transcends all circumstances and all suffering. Uh, So let's go back to the advantage of single life. The advantage of single life is that you have this undistracted opportunity, this this freedom in in your schedule. But let's understand, the blessing of single life is not that you have this freedom from obligation to pursue your own pleasures. The blessing of single life is that you have freedom to devote yourself to the Lord, single-mindedly. That's how you find contentment as a single person, not seeking pleasures over here, but devoting yourself fully to the Lord. And it's true for marriage as well. If you want to find contentment in your marriage and in your family, the only way is to devote your marriage and your family to the Lord, to use your marriage and family to serve the Lord, to build his kingdom, to glorify his name. That's how you find contentment in life. That's actually the catch-22 of happiness. How how do you find happiness? Most people assume you find happiness by chasing after it. You you chase happiness by trying to meet all of your desires, satisfy all of your pleasures. If you do that, you will never find contentment. You'll never find it. If you chase happiness, it will always elude you. you. You can't find happiness by chasing it. The only way to find happiness is to chase the Lord. You chase the Lord, devoting yourself completely to his desires, to his kingdom, and happiness will find you. Contentment will find you. It's catch to a happiness. You can't chase it. You gotta chase the Lord and then it will find you. So very practically, if you want to live a life of lasting joy and contentment, you gotta avoid sin. If you give in to sin, it will poison the waters in your soul. You will not be able to enjoy life and experience contentment. If you give in to lust, to envy, to selfishness, to greed, to pride, those things will prevent you from experiencing contentment. But, but to have contentment, it's not just enough to run from sin. Not enough to just run from the bad stuff. You've got to run towards the good stuff. You run away from sin and you run towards the mission that God has given you in life. If you want to experience contentment, you got to find a way to serve the Lord using the gifts that he's given you. You need to identify what are your spiritual gifts. What are the abilities and talents that God has uniquely wired into you? And then you need to find a place where you can use those gifts to build God's kingdom. Maybe that's here in the local church or in a ministry in the community or maybe it's in missions. In some place, you need to find an opportunity to use your unique gifts to serve the Lord. That's where you will find meaning and purpose and mission to your life that will bring joy to you. No matter what circumstances you're in, if you have a mission that compels you, that mission will transcend all of your circumstances and bring a deep sense of happiness to your soul. So when I was graduating from A&M, I decided to move up to Washington, D.C. to take a job, and it did not work out as I had intended. I did not like living up in D.C. because my job was awful. Just really frustrating, really unenjoyable. And no one from Texas came with me, so I didn't know a lot of people. And all the friends that I made up there, they're all Northerners, which was really new for me. Didn't really know how to interact with them. And everything was so incredibly expensive. I just felt like I was going to always be in debt. Life was really hard up there. I had a hard living situation. Life was really difficult. And yet I was incredibly content when I was up in D.C. Because as soon as I got up there, God gave me an opportunity 
to start an inductive Bible study at a small local Bible church. And God wired me to teach. That's like my thing. And so I would go to work and I'd hate it because it's my job and it was awful. And then I would come home and eat dinner and then I would get giddy. I'd get all excited because it was time to go to Barnes and Noble and get a latte and a table and work on Bible study. And I loved it. Because God had given me a mission to do. He had given me a reason for being on the planet Earth. And as I poured myself and devoted all of my free time to this mission God had given me, it gave me an incredible sense of joy and satisfaction, even though I had few friends and no wife and hated my job. My circumstances did not control my life because I devoted myself to the mission God had uniquely given me. Do you want to know contentment in life? If you want to know happiness deep down in your soul that transcends all of the circumstances and all of the mess of your life, you need to find the mission he's given you. And you need to devote yourself wholeheartedly to it. You need to serve the Lord using your gifts to build his kingdom. And you will know a joy that transcends every circumstance. Contentment really is possible in life. At every stage of life and in any circumstance. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whatever your circumstances in life, you can have contentment right now. You can have contentment today that lasts. It doesn't slip through your fingers. You can have contentment that lasts if, number one, you will start with the gospel. If you will find love and forgiveness and hope and peace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then number two, if you will believe That your circumstance, your stage of life right now has unique and incredible advantages. If you will find those advantages and celebrate them and give thanks for them. And number three, if you will believe that that the time is short, the end is near. And when we're all in heaven together, no one will care whether you were rich or poor, married or single, had kids or no kids. None of that will matter in the beauty and bliss of God's love in heaven. And finally, number four, you will have contentment if you will run from sin and run towards the unique mission that God has crafted for you in this life, if you will find your reason for being on this planet and pour yourself into that mission, you will find a joy and a happiness deep in your soul that you didn't chase after. It found you. And it will transcend every circumstance and every form of suffering in your life. You can be content. And so in a moment, we're going to pray for God to help us to be content, but let's understand, we're we're not just asking to, to become content for ourselves. Ultimately, the reason why God wants us to be content and happy and joyful deep in our souls is for everybody else. So they would look at Christians and see genuinely joyful people, not because life is always going well, but because we have found a source of happiness and joy that transcends every circumstance. We want the world to see that joy in us, that, that happiness deep in us, because that will attract them to Jesus. For always sad, sad people, why would anyone want to come? But if they see a joy and contentment deep in your soul, no matter the circumstance, that is incredibly attractive. So let's pray that God would make us content so that we can be a light that attracts the world to his son. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that contentment is possible for us because your son Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. Without Jesus Christ, there would be no cause for happiness in life. We would be lost, we would be without hope. 
So we thank you that your son died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we could be forgiven and have peace with you and have security in the fact that you will save us. Thank you so much for the gift of your son who makes contentment possible, Lord. But we, we confess that contentment is hard for us, that it is not our natural bent, that we are far more likely to focus on what we don't have. So, Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would transform us, that you would convict us, that you would change us and grow us. Help us to learn contentment. Help us to discover the source of of true happiness deep in our souls. I pray, Lord, that for each and every one of us, you would help us to see the unique advantages and blessings of the stage of life that we're in. Help us to see those. Help us to celebrate those. Help us to give thanks for those when we feel tempted to be envious of others. I pray, Father, that you would help us to believe that the end is near. Help us to rejoice in what is coming next. I pray, Lord, that we would long for the greener grass of heaven, that that is what would thrill our hearts and stir our souls. I pray, help us to look forward to that so that all the circumstances of this life pale by comparison. And finally, Father, I pray that you would convict us and turn us of sin and help each and every one of us to discover the unique mission that you have called us to in this life. I pray that everyone here would at some point in life discover why they're here what the unique mission is that you have called them to fulfill on the planet earth i pray that they would find that and that they would devote themselves to it and that they would find incredible inexhaustible unconditional joy as they devote their lives to serve you I pray, Father, that we would be people who are joyful and content irrespective of circumstances so that when the world looks at us, they would be attracted to Jesus. I pray that they would see the joy of Jesus in our lives and be drawn to him. We pray all this for the glory of your son who makes it all possible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great, happy, and content week.